Uh, so if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 this week. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 1. But really, it is an extension from what we read last week, verses 5 through 10. By the way, you do know that these numbers in your Bible are arbitrary. They, they were not there in the original text. This was a letter meant to be read as a whole to a church, to a particular people, to a, at a particular place, uh, communicating a particular message. Have you ever taken a letter that you got in the mail and you read just a portion of it and you said it, put it away, and then you came back to it a week later and you read the rest of the letter? Probably not. And so what we find in these letters here, there is a flow of thought between verses 10 from chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. So we'll pick up there, chapter 2, um, John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. The text reads this way, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know, we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says, he abides in him all to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Gracious God, we recognize our true need for you. So Father, we pray right now, by your spirit, through your word, you would stir us to treasure Jesus Christ more and more today. Father, use your word to do that. We ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. As we dig into this text, though, I think it's important that we really try to understand um, the biblical model of repentance and confession, confession and repentance, uh, which is, you know, again, definitely a flowing thought from what we heard last week from our passage. Um, but more often than not, these two words, they conjure up really one or two ideas, uh, both of which can often, you know, are wrong, uh, quite frankly. If I say repentance for some of us who are still, um, you know, still a little bit shell-shocked from our fundamentalist upbringing, we immediately conjure up this idea of a man standing in front of a building telling us about uh, R-rated movies and uh, telling us about beer and how we should repent, uh, demanding that we repent. And, and the other that we may fall prey to uh, is that repentance and confession is something we only do uh, at conversion. So when the Holy Spirit convicts us and opens our hearts to believe the gospel, the reality of, the, uh, of, of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, we, we, you know, we confess that we are sinners, we repent of our sins, and then we're done. Like somehow it's leaked into, this, uh, into our evangelical intellect that the, the longer we are Christians the less we need to repent and confess. And the problem with this way of thinking is the Bible. 
The Bible simply just does not say these things. And so, I'll give you a little bit of a quiz. October 31st. What is that? Uh, some, some of you are, are extra, are extra uh, godly, right? Extra, extra spiritual, I guess. I hear a little bit of a Halloween, a little bit of a Reformation. And if you said Reformation, you are correct. October 31st, 1517. A monk by the name of Martin Luther was so disturbed by what he was seeing in Catholicism. At that time, in 14th century of Catholicism, they were selling indulgences. Uh, they wanted to build cathedrals in Rome, and they didn't have quite enough money. Uh, so they would go into these small towns and say stuff like this. If, if you give this amount of money uh, to this project in Rome, the Pope can pray a prayer and let your brother or sister out of purgatory. Uh, now, one, uh, no one at this point had a Bible. And so they were just taking what they were being told. Uh, so, you know, you had this and you also had Peter's bones. They were in Geneva and they were also in Rome. And if, and if you would go travel to those places and you would touch the bones, uh, you would get an extra blessing. And so Luther, Luther saw all that was going on in the Catholic Church, that the Catholic Church was deceiving people. So he wrote 95 statements against the Catholic Church and for what he saw as biblical Christianity. And he took a hammer and nail, and he went to the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed it to the door, uh, and he started what we know as the Great Reformation, separating Protestant Reformation, uh, Protestant, Protestantism from Catholicism. Um, and really, by the way, the Bible you're holding in your lap today is... Uh, is, is, is a reality that was brought about by what happened on this day. It was a movement that began on this day. But, I, you know, I wanted to highlight what Luther says in his first thesis, his first statement. This is the first statement of the 95 statements that he makes. That when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, again, referencing Matthew chapter 4, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of the Christian. Luther is making it clear and really stands, again, as an extension from everything we saw last week from chap uh, chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through the passage we read this morning. And it's this reality that confession and repentance is the means by which Christians continue to grow. You want to grow as a Christian? Let confession, repentance, and faith be a pattern of your life. We never reach a point where we do less and less repentance. It's actually the mark of the true believer to do more and more repentance and confession. So I think it's important for us to redeem that thought and to really drive in this idea as we dive into our text this morning. So... Um, John wants us to see that our confession and repentance, though, is not arbitrary. We don't just do this religious action and 
think this arbitrary thing comes from God. We don't just say, I, I was wrong, I was all jacked up. I will continue to be jacked up, and we look to God uh, for some sort of blind forgiveness that he gives. Our forgiveness, again, is not rooted in our actions. Our forgiveness is rooted in someone tangible. There's uh, really someone who uh, can rest in our forgiveness. Someone we can actually be resting in for our forgiveness. That is the person of Jesus Christ. Don't ask this question. Who is this person? And how does he work on our behalf to bring about redemption, reconciliation, and forgiveness? Really, the tangible thing that we grasp to when we repent and confess. What is the tangible thing? So we see that in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, if, you get that, right? When? But when anyone does sin? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins, not for, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our advocate. For the first seven times in this letter, John is, uses this phrase, my little children. It's this really is this term of endearment, uh, this fatherly concern that he has. John John sees himself as his spiritual father, and they as his spiritual children, and they stand really in, in striking contrast to the liars that he addresses in chapter 1. So John says, as a spiritual father, and really now grandfather, I am writing uh, to you these things. These things we talked about again last week, uh, so that you may not sin, all of this, these words I'm giving to you, so that you may not sin. John has made it clear that this is the life. We cannot be sinless. But he does believe we can grow and actually begin to sin less and less over time. Because we are now in an intimate fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So we will still sin until we are glorified. Embrace that reality. What we do when we sin. What, what do we do when we sin? Well, if you look again back at chapter 1 verse 9, he told us that if we confess our sins, now in 2.1 he tells us to flee to our Savior who is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The word advocate, or parakletos, or paraclete from the Greek, the word occurs really five times in the New Testament. Four times it refers to the Holy Spirit. Only here is it a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to be our advocate because He is the righteous one. Our advocate is sinless, undefiled, and spotless in His nature, and and in all of his actions, there is no one like him. I, you could tell I've been using a particular commentary. Last week I had two Calvin quotes, and I have another one here today for us this morning. 
Calvin, though, explains Christ's ministry as an advocate. Uh, he appears before, this is what he says, he appears before God for the purpose of exercising towards us the power and efficacy of his sacrifice. To make this more easily understood, I will speak more bluntly. Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. The reason why God does not impute our sins to us is because he looks upon Christ, the intercessor. So the word advocate here means helper. One who is called to come alongside in a time of need. This, this helper uh, helps us when we sin. You know, he is the cleanser of sin. You know, chapter 1 verse 7. He is the forgiver of sins, verse 9 from chapter 1. And the helper when we sin. When we sin. It is a, really, isn't the gospel amazing? I mean, we have a helper in our heart, the Holy Spirit, right? Testifying that we are children of God, right? Helping us to pray when we don't know how to pray. And we have a helper in heaven, the righteous one. Or as Paul tells us, again, chapter uh, Romans 8, we have an intercessor in our hearts, an intercessor in heaven. And as a result, no sin can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is good news. This is good news that we get to rest in. Now, verse 2, John now informs us why Jesus can be our advocate. It is because he made a propitiation, an atonement for our sins. The word propitiation is really a very important word in the New Testament. Um, it comes from this Greek word, uh, the hilasmos. Uh, maybe, uh, I know Pastor Chris can maybe correct me on my, my, my Greek. He's much more advanced than I am now. Um, and the word and its variants occur in the context of the work of Christ in four passages, including the one we have here. So I think it may be helpful for us to see these. Romans chapter 3, 25 says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he, may, he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And of course, later on, we'll see 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, this word carries the idea of satisfaction. Jesus Christ, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's holy and righteous white-hot wrath towards sinners. The wrath that should have been poured out on, uh, on sinners was poured out on Jesus Christ. The judgment 
that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. All of this was done to accomplish God's purpose. The reason Jesus can be our advocate despite our sin is that he was born, that he bore all of this on the cross. The punishment required for the sins of all who believe. You know, since he took the punishment, it means that our sins have been judged. Turned away the wrath that we deserve so that we are now reconciled to God. The sin bearer now stands as our advocate. And so we can turn to him. And by the way, I'm going to use this point right here. It's long. So whoever's running the slides, please leave it up so people can write it down. So bear with me. Despite our ongoing battle with sin, we have an advocate in Jesus who is testifying to the Father that our sins have been covered by his blood and testifying that we are forgiven. This is good news. Intercession is something Christ is always doing. While advocacy is something he does at occasions call for it, you know. He intercedes for us given our general sinfulness, but he advocates for us in the case of specific sins. Note the personal nature of Christ's advocacy. It's not a static part of his work. His advocacy rears up when occasions require for it. The Bible nowhere teaches that once we have been savingly united with Christ, we will find grievous sins to be a thing of the past. We can look at the world around us. We can look at the heartache we've probably experienced in our own lives and know this is not true. On the contrary, it is our regenerate state that has more deeply been sensitized has sensitized us to the uh, impropriety of our sins. Our sins feel far more sinful after we have become believers than before. And it's not only our felt perception of our sinfulness. We do indeed continue to sin after we become believers. And really, because without saying, sometimes we sin in really big ways. And that is what Christ's advocacy is for. It's God's way of encouraging us not to throw in the towel. Yes, we, we fail Christ in his, uh, as his disciples, but his advocacy on our behalf rises higher and higher for our sins. His advocacy speaks louder than our failures. All is taken care of. When you sin, remember your legal standing before God because of the work of Christ. But remember also your advocate before God because of the heart of Christ. He rises up and defends your cause based on the merits of his own suffering and death. So your salvation 
is not merely a matter of a saving formula, but a saving person. When you sin, his strength of resolve rises more and more. When his brothers and sisters fail and stumble, he advocates on their behalf because it is who he is. He cannot bear to leave us alone and to fend for ourselves. He is the good shepherd, right? He pursues us in our weakness. Who is Jesus in our moments of spiritual blankness? Not who is he once you conquered that sin, but who is he in the midst of it? The Apostle John says we stand up, he stands up and defies all, of, all accusers. Jesus is our paraclete, our, our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin. Not after we get over it. While we're sinning. Right in the midst of the darkness. Right in the midst of our failures, Jesus is there advocating for us. We are indeed called to forsake our sins. And no healthy Christian would suggest otherwise. We talked about that last week. When we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as children of God. And we invite mercy into our lives. And, 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 and it's possible, as we talked about last week, we saw in the text, it is possible to displease the Father, but it doesn't change His love for us. We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord, this truer consecration, new ways of obedience. But, but when we don't, this is the message for us all, when we don't, when we choose to sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not forsake us. These are the very moments when our hearts erupt on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusers, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace for us in spite, in spite of our messiness. Do not minimize your sin or excuse it in any way. Raise no defense. Confess it. Repent of it. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Let your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous. And all his brightness and sufficiency. John goes on to say, end of verse 2, Jesus dealt with not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. You know, some have suggested that this means that all people will be saved whether or not they repent of their sins and trust Jesus. 
However, the burden of this letter is to discern true believers from false ones. John's letter would be pointless if all were, were going to be redeemed anyways. So that's not what he's saying. John has declared various groups of people to be out of fellowship with God, not recipients of the propitiating work of Christ. He is then not contradicting himself here. The message of this salvation is not to be restricted to one group, but really is to be proclaimed boldly to people everywhere. And I'll just say, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, I know this probably rises up questions within you. And I will say this, your pastors are eager to have these discussions with you. Call us. Let's go have coffee. Let's talk about these things. And these are the types of things we love to sit down with and talk about. Because these truths, these things that are much, that, that are really larger than our finite minds can even comprehend, uh, are given to us to bring us to joy, to, to, to arise within us worship. And so they're not there for our debate. So if you say, hey, let's go have coffee, our intent is to not to debate these things with you. Uh, our intent is to help you know, what, you know, by God's grace, one another, we're helping one another see the glories of God through salvation and how that's applied and all these things. So, uh, so please feel free to reach out to any of your pastors at any time to talk about these things. Now, some of you might be saying, Adam, I hear you, but, but how can we be sure? You know, how can... What can we be sure of? How can we know? And in verses 3 through 6, he deals with this question. How can I have assurance? Verse 3, And by this, we know that we have come to know him. A very important use of the word twice there in the context, but used in slightly different ways. The word know. The second way it's used uh, is a way that we're very familiar with. No, to, you know, uh, to be in a right relationship with, a relationship of, of love and, and, and of friendship. But the first is used not quite in the same way. At the end of verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep his commandments. It's very unambiguous declaration. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Direct, straightforward, unapologetic, unambiguous. If you claim to know him, but you do not walk after him, you do not keep his commandments, he says, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. The word is the word for mature. In him the love of God matures. To grow up in the love of God, to mature in the love of God is what he's talking about. 
And then he says at the end of verse 5, By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And that's what it means to keep his commands. That, that's the way he pictures it here. That's the pathway to assurance, to walk in the same way in which he walked, to follow, to, to follow after. But in verse 3, how do we know that we know? How do we know? And the answer is direct, isn't it? If we keep his commands. But whoever does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. We keep his word. We ought to walk in the way that he walked. Now, it's important that we recognize. He, he's not saying we know because we don't sin. He's made this really clear, right? Really clear. You know, remember verse 8 from last week. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in verse 10, uh, as direct as it can be stated, if we say we have not sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then he goes on to say, as... Uh, we just saw, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the wrath bearer for our sins. So in no way can it be misunderstood here that what he's saying is the way we are sure is we do not sin or we overcome sin. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? In verse 3, the word translated know is used in two different ways. In fact, it's used in a variety of ways in the Bible. And all that's, you know, that's not really that awkward for us because, you know, we use it in a variety of ways ourselves. You know, we might say, I know that person. Or I know we've got a couple of meteorologists here. You might say, I know that it's going to rain tomorrow. Actually, meteorologists can't even do that. You might say, I know my wife. And of course, in the Bible, that's used in a variety of ways. We might say, or I might say, you know, I know golf because I grew up practically living on a golf course. Played sun up to sundown for most of my childhood. And there are all kinds of shades that we use the word no. And it's the same way with the Greek word here. Uh, most of us read verse 3, though, and we get the second part right. We know that he's talking about knowing him in the sense of being in a relationship with him, abiding in his love, having the enmity removed and having a relationship with him. What it means to be right with God. He goes on to talk about this again and again, to know him, we are in him, we are abiding in him. He is consumed uh, with this issue. But what about the first no? And by this, we know we have come to know him, to be in a right relationship with him, to be in a relationship of love and friendship. And most of us read the first usage of this word, and we read it, we might say to ourselves, by this, 
I am intellectually convinced that I know him, that I'm in a right relationship of love and friendship with him, intellectually convinced by this. And, and what that leads to is this sort of checklist mentality. By this, you know, I am intellectually convinced that I'm in right relationship with him because I keep his commandments. Okay, give me the list of commands. I will evaluate. I will be in, uh, introspective. I will examine myself. I will see whether or not I have been a command keeper or not. And we may conclude, yes, I've been a command keeper. After all, I've not murdered anybody. You know, I've not stolen anything. I haven't lied to anybody. And so we develop the list and we evaluate ourselves. We say, yes, I, I'm in a right relationship with him because I have evaluated the list and I uh, am keeping his commandments. On the other hand, somebody else might say, well, okay, I am intellectually convinced. What's the list? How do I know the commands? They evaluate themselves and they say, you know, I lust. I covet. I get angry. And therefore, I, I just don't know. Therefore, I, I'm in despair. Now, here's the problem. The person who is less sensitive to God is more likely to convince themselves that they obey the checklist. And they're more likely to pick a checklist that they, uh, that they actually are obeying. <laughs> Not the ones that they know they can't. The less sensitive, presumptuous, self-righteous. The person who, rather, is more sensitive to God and has a sense that they've offended God picks a different list, knows that they don't measure up at any time fully. And so the person who cares the most ends up in the most despair. You see, here's, here's a problem. We assume that we are absolutely capable of defining the checklist and that we are absolutely capable of standing back and evaluating ourselves, being introspective and drawing the right conclusions. But that sort of approach actually produces the exact opposite of the truth. I will tell you, after my, through my years of pastoral ministry, I have people who will come to me and say, I, don't, I just don't know if I'm a Christian. And I will tell you nine times out of ten, I, I can, I, by, by what I've observed in their life, I could say, I, I really think, and you can define the gospel, they can articulate it well, they, they understand substitution, and they, they, they've confessed to believe all these things, but yet they still are struggling. And my response generally to that person is to say, you know, I'm more concerned with the person who doesn't come to me and, and ask these questions. <laughs> the person who is like totally indifferent to the things of God, those are the people that, again, have their checklists, they've evaluated them, and they've said, I'm a command keeper, I, I, I do just fine. But the person, typically, the person who is giving themselves to the church, they, they aren't just you know, wandering about, they've got faithful attendance, they're here, they're the ones, generally, who are struggling with 
You see, I'm convinced that the ones who are walking away from the church, if you would have said, well, your assurance comes from your ability to keep the commands, examine yourselves, they would have given their list. They would have said, we're doing just fine. Leave us alone. But those who are in love with Jesus and passionate and burdened and broken within the church, who are loving one another, you know, probably are saying, well, but, but we don't measure up. We don't do this. We don't do that. It's terrible to take a presumptuous and, right, and self-righteous uh, person and give them a phony pathway to confidence. And it's an awful to take uh, people who love Jesus and are sensitive to the truth and drive them to despair. And Satan is pleased with this exchange, by the way. For the person who's indifferent, he wants them to hold their moral checklist up. For the person who's actually resting in Jesus, or at least confesses to rest in Jesus, he wants them to feel the burden of the law that they can't measure up. You see, assurance does not come from our ability to be able to stand back and reflect on our own Christian performance. We're not good evaluators, actually. We're not that objective for the good and the bad. Our assurance does not reside in our ability to step, to, to step away and stand back and say, okay, you know, how am I doing? It doesn't reside there at all. Assurance is not the fruit of our own introspection. How can you be sure? Well, I'm always introspective. You know, I'm always inspecting myself. That is not the pathway. You see, the way he's using no here in verse 3 has more of, a, more of this sense, by, by this we know that I've come to know him. More of a sense of saying, we have fully experienced what we have come to be, uh, that we have come to be in a right relationship with him. And that changes everything. We know how to use the word that way. We get the sense of it, the way it's being used here. You see, there are those who are walking away. Uh, how can we know? How can we be sure? And he says to them, by this we are sure, uh, by this we are sure we are in right relationship with him if we keep his commands. And really, it's the experience of command keeping. There's a song uh, by Brad Paisley. My wife and I love Brad Paisley many years ago. Uh, right after we got married, we had no kids at this time, uh, we went to a Brad Paisley concert <clears throat> in Louisville. Um, anyways, he sings a song, um, and I, he sings a song titled, Then. And there's this phrase that he uses over and over and over in the song, and I thought I loved you then. And he talks about meeting, uh, you know, his, his wife in the song. Uh, he talks about meeting her at the very beginning, um, and, um, you know, and then they go through a little bit of a relationship and they have a little bit of life together. And then he says, and I thought I loved you then. And then they, they went through some more stuff. You know, they got married, they had kids. 
And he says, I thought I loved you then. And then he goes through life together and he, and, uh, he understands the, the, the deepening reality of their love together. And, you know, when I think about this song, you know, I think, you know, it, it does a really good job of describing the love I have for my life, my, my own wife. You know, I can remember meeting her and then, you know, progressing, that relationship progresses here we are standing in a church together, and I'm thinking to myself, I thought I loved you then, like early in our relationship. And then 14 years and four sons that bring good days and not so good days. Um, you know, I can honestly say today that I thought I loved you then. Now, I know that I know. I know because she has trusted me. She has proven her own self to be trustworthy. Our relationship has matured. The experience of, of, of that relationship is what gives me that confidence to say, I know more today than I knew then. And that's why he says in verse 5, in him truly, that is, in the person who obeys the commands, in him truly the love of God is perfected, matured. It fully grows. Now get this picture. If all you do is sit back and introspectively, you know, look at your ability to keep the commands, you're not maturing. It's not the way it works. You know, you, you don't keep the commands the way you should. You, you know this. But you hear him, and you take a step in, that, in his direction, and the relationship grows and matures. You know, in marriage, if you get frustrated with one another... And your response is to say, you know what, I'm sick of it. You know, uh, you know we may live in the same house, but, but I'm going to ignore her. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to isolate myself from her. Uh, I guarantee you this. If you do that, your love for her, your love for him, will not grow. It will not mature. It will not be perfected. It won't. In fact, it'll begin to, you know, you'll begin to evaluate everything through a lens of really a lack of love. But if you say, no matter how difficult it is, I'm just going to, I'm going to keep showing love. I'm going to keep being patient. I'm going to, to keep being kind. Guess what happens? Your love matures. It grows. It deepens. You see, assurance does not come from your ability to evaluate a checklist of Christian performance. It comes from obedience itself. John is not referring to faultless obedience, but to a new trajectory of life that springs from a radical transformation that happens when we are born again. 
John is also not saying that our obedience merits or earns God's love. Again, I'm going to beat that dead horse. He has already established Christ's propitiating sacrifice as the basis for our salvation. But rather that, again, another long point, those who have God's love show it. And this evidence of a life transformed by him is crucial assurance of being united to him. Our obedience does not gain his love, but evidences it. Does that make sense? Our disobedience does not remove his love, but it does affect our assurance. And it should. We cannot confidently claim by his grace is ours if we show no evidence that our lives are his. It does not come from our introspection, though. If you're trying to get assurance from your own introspection, you're probably drawing the wrong conclusion. You understand the difference. You know, don't trust in your own ability to evaluate. Hear his voice and take a step in that direction. You want assurance? It's a powerful word to these churches in Asia Minor, and it's a powerful word for us today. As we are taking these steps of obedience, you want to know that you know, he says to, to them, just simply walk in the same way that he walked. Love, self-sacrifice. By the way, that step of obedience in this direction, often when, when we are clear about his direction, you know, our gut tells us something different. Our gut says, don't do it. You know, don't, don't, don't do it. We, you know, it may tell you that will be uncomfortable. It will definitely be awkward. And so when we know his voice, when we know his commands, when we know his direction, and our gut says, no, don't do it. Obedience looks like doing it anyways. Obey the words of the risen Christ. Do not obey your gut. You see how dangerous it is to be self, for this self-focused introspection. We start trusting in our ability to evaluate and start listening to our gut, thinking that, that this is the way to get assurance. Well, constantly your gut says don't. John is pointing us to a better picture. He's pointing us to someone that says, remember what Christ has done on your behalf. Remember the obedience that God, that, that, that was demonstrated to God by his son. By living a perfect life in your place. Dying a death that we deserve to die. And the more we follow his word, trusting in his provision, trusting that his way is better than our way, and actually doing it, the experience of obedience 
the more you will grow in growing and really knowing that you know Him. Let's pray.